Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today we begin a new feature called Postscript. Over the next months, Lily Gorn and I will be inviting authors back to the program to react to contemporary political developments that engage their scholarship. Our first program is devoted to China. We have four scholars who will help those of us who do not specialize in China focus on what is important for our teaching and citizenship, and they have recent articles and outlets that we commonly access like The Guardian and The New York Times. For those who do specialize, this is a rare chance to hear an interdisciplinary panel of top China scholars bring their research expertise to contemporary events that evolve each day. I'll introduce them more fully over the course of the podcast, but for now, we have Dr. Yang Chen. Uh, Cornell University, Dr. James Millward, Georgetown University, Dr. Margaret Roberts, University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Jeff Wasserstrom. Dr. Wasserstrom is the Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine. As the co-founder of the Forum for the Academy and the Public, Jeff engages the community through conferences, pop-ups, and contemporary issues. Wasserstrom is the founder and an academic editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books China Channel, which he publishes, which publishes literary reviews of books on Chinese history, culture, language, and politics. His expertise on China has been called upon by both the Congressional Executive Committee on China, before whom he testified, and the State Department, for whom he conducted a briefing on contemporary Chinese politics. Wasserstrom recently appeared on All Things Considered, to provide analysis on the resumption of protests in China after, in Hong Kong, pardon me, after China relaxed its rules on social distancing. This week in the Hindu, he and James Carter assessed the fall of Hong Kong's independence. And in the Atlantic, Jeff compared modern day Hong Kong to Cold War era West Berlin. He has written, co-written, edited, or co-edited more than a dozen books on topics ranging from Shanghai protests to human rights and revolutions around the world to gender in China. Jeff, you joined the podcast in May to discuss your most recent book, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, from Columbia Global Reports 2020, and we recorded just as China announced new security laws for Hong Kong. Uh, your book helped me as a non-specialist contextualize the protests and the security laws in terms of China's long history and the policies of Xi Jinping. Um, once again, we're talking just as distressing news about Hong Kong breaks. As I follow these events, it's, it's not always clear to me what's new and what's a continuation of past policy. Can, can you start us off by giving us a reminder of what has happened in the last weeks and how we might understand these developments? Great. It's good to be good to be back here. I, I, I really hope sometime I'll be on when there aren't distressing uh, news reports coming out of Hong Kong. Uh, the most recent news reports uh, have been about the dismissal of Benny Tai, a law prof- tenured law professor 
at the University of Hong Kong, who was dismissed clearly because of his expressions of political opinions. It's important to note that Benny Tai has been a a strong supporter of nonviolent civil disobedience. He's often seen as a relatively moderate figure within the pro-democracy camp. There also also were four teenagers arrested um, just yesterday for expressions largely on social media that were interpreted by the authorities as transgressing the new national security law in the sense that they were um, promoting what could be seen as an, what the, the authorities claim is comes too close to uh, separatist ideas. And they could face very long prison terms or even potentially uh, life imprisonment. And then most recently of all, a whole slate of pro-democracy candidates for the upcoming legislative election um, have been disqualified from running for office because of either their them being seen as having connections to or calling for international um, intervention in in Hong Kong, or again moving too close toward um, toward suggesting that Hong Kong should somehow be independent. And and I should say, just as the one correction to your your lead in, that it's not the end of Hong Kong's independence. Hong Kong hasn't been independent. What all of what's happened um, this year has been the end to a degree of kind of semi-autonomous status within the People's Republic of China for Hong Kong. And so to just back up, in 1997, Hong Kong, which had been for a long time a British colony, was brought into the People's Republic of China as a special administrative region which was told that for 50 years, it would have a high degree of autonomy under something called a one country, two systems framework. What this meant is it would be part of one country, the PRC. So Beijing would handle things like um, defense and diplomacy, but there would be two systems. That is uh, a separate system in Hong Kong would, um, would continue that had a clear separation of powers between courts and the executive branch and the legislative branch, which doesn't exist on the mainland. Uh, There would be a freer press, there would be freer rights to assembly, and so on. And one of the things that was, there was a basic law, there was a constitution-like document that was supposed to describe how this would work. And one thing that that document said quite clearly was that it would, that over time, Hong Kong people would get to choose who the, the leading executive was, the chief executive of, um, of the, the territory. And over time, they would come up with, their own government would come up with a law governing um, issues of sedition and subversion. The protests in um, the last, uh, ever since then, have been usually efforts to push back against what was seen as Beijing exerting tighter control that endangered that, um, that one country, the two systems part of the one country, two systems. And protests have sometimes success or moves by the local government to do things that were seen by, um, by local people as infringing on traditions of freedom to protest, freedom, to spe- uh, freedom of speech, and things like that. There were also protests sometimes to push for a faster move toward that promised democracy of um, a direct role in selecting the chief executive. 
because the chief executive, including the current one, Carrie Lam, has been elected, but only via an election that some less than 2,000 people within a city of over 7 million have gotten to play a role in. So in in Vigil, I talked about these various protests, some of which succeeded in getting the government to to stop or getting Beijing to pull back, um, some of which didn't as they played out between uh, 1997 and 2019. In 2020, there's been a rapid tightening of controls more than before, and there's a doing away with the separation of powers. And Beijing jumped the gun, did not allow the local authorities to come up with this this law governing sedition and subversion, but instead imposed one on it. So really, this year has seen the death of not of Hong Kong as a city, it's still a vibrant, interesting city, but the death of one country, two systems. And in terms of what's new or not under Xi Jinping, I mean, a lot of the moves toward tightening had taken place periodically before, but they've been ratcheted up and become more steady since Xi took power. But they predate um, Xi Jinping's rise. One of the most important um, protests was in 2012, before he, he, he assumed head, head of the party, when there was an effort to bring mainland-style type patriotic education into Hong Kong. And a group of largely high school students, including Joshua Wong, who went on to become globally famous, staged protests against that and succeeded in getting the government um, to slow down there. Um, the one thing I want to leave you with is, is a kind of a general thought, is that until um, last year, I thought it was quite easy still to say that you could divide the PRC up into three kinds of zones with different kinds of control. Um, at the furthest, the tightest control, and we'll hear much more about this from, from Jim, who's an expert on that, that, that region, there were the places in the far northwest of, of China, particularly Xinjiang and Tibet, where there was the most draconian kind of controls on speech and action. Then there was the mainland in which there was a lighter control, but still much control. But then there was Hong Kong and to some degree Macau, another special administrative region where you could say in all the kind of areas of life, of civil society, things were freer there. Now, these things have gone to a point where that kind of easy tripartite division is is completely messed up. There are lots of ways in which things that go on in Hong Kong are becoming very similar to what goes on on the mainland. And also, more sort of most alarmingly of all, there are some ways in which Hong Kong now can resemble uh, not the mainland, but be moving toward the things that have been happening in Xinjiang and Tibet. And the one example of that is that if you're in a city like Shanghai or Beijing, and you say, I really love my city, in some ways, I love my city more than I love the country that it's part of. That's not a dangerous thing to say. But in Xinjiang and Tibet, for a long time, that's been seen as making you um, liable to be seen as a splittist, a separatist, as in a sense having said something that the state might view as treasonous. Now, Hong Kong, which used to be so clearly the freest place, is someplace where if you express that kind of deep love for Hong Kong, and even if you say, I really think Hong Kong should have the high degree of autonomy that it had at the beginning of this um, period of being part of the PRC, that can be interpreted as uh, you becoming a dangerous figure. And it's those kinds of things that had these teenagers recently um, snatched in the night and um, 
facing what could be very serious, serious charges. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for trying to catch us up and also offering us some stuff to, to chew on. What has been the American uh, and European, uh, what has been the response from others to this departure, as you say, not, not completely abrupt because Hong Kong didn't have full independence, but the security laws are different. They are harsher. What has the response been from elsewhere? And, 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 and what would you want the response to be from, from other world powers? So there has been, um, there have been denunciations of this by some world powers. And, um, but it's been somewhat scattershot in part because of the distracted sense of the world and the problems, incredibly big problems we're dealing with here in the United States and that other countries are dealing with. Well, when I think about this in a broad picture, um, in 1990, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who'd been involved in um, brokering the deal with Hong Kong um, that was made in uh, the the in 1984, they started these discussions. In 1990, they came to a clearer understanding. But in 1990, she was asked, well, about what she thought the prospects were for uh, Beijing living up to its promises toward Hong Kong after 97. And remember, this was right a year after the June 4th massacre that ended the protests in Tiananmen Square. And what she said was that she thought there was a good hope for things going forward, even though she was concerned about where China was going. It was still experimenting with with economic reforms, and she thought that would lead to political forms and liberalization, as many people thought then. And she said Beijing would keep up its promises because it would want to be seen by the forum of the world as being, um, as its word being good. I think what we've seen now is not just that Xi Jinping's rise has shown how wrong it was to assume that any kind of liberalizing trend was going to be the long, definitely the long-term one in China. It was for a time, and Beijing did keep its promises unusually well in some ways in the late 90s and early 2000s with Hong Kong. But the other thing is the forum of the world is no longer a kind of coherent force or one that Beijing is as ready to, um, to bow to or to worry about. So Beijing has, um, we have a divided world. Um, the, the, the most important thing for a pushback would be if um, the West was less divided and divisive. And so I think the Trump administration fraying alliances with Europe and with um, traditional partners in East Asia, South Korea and Japan has made it really hard to have a kind of unified response over Hong Kong that would be one of the things that could have more oomph. But also, um, Beijing has cultivated a large number of um, countries around the world, in part through um, through economic aid, and in part through again the fact that the admir- admirableness of, of um, the United States and other powers has diminished. So that when this took place, while there was stern talk about what had happened from D.C. and from London. Beijing could point to a whole set, dozens of countries that um, uh, that said the national security law was a good thing and was particularly appropriate. So there's been a divided response. So it would it would be important to see. I mean, it would be most valuable if there were a more united response by organizations like the United Nations um, and more consistency 
in uh, what the U.S. and the U.K. are are doing regarding Hong Kong. But I think a big problem is just the world pays isn't paying enough attention, and I think it's understandable that the media talks about each of these events. There's coverage. There are great reporters still trying to get the word out from Hong Kong. But um, there's just too much going on for there to be a consistent uh, paying attention to uh, these moves. And Beijing is shrewdly doing these moves sort of one at a time. There wasn't a kind of rounding up of every Hong Kong activist you'd ever heard of that might have had uh, right after the law went into effect. And that might have led to, to more of a kind of sustained, clear outrage. And finally, and I think this is something else that can come up with other issues, um, the White House has been very inconsistent. It's periodically praised Xi Jinping and uh, periodically criticized moves such as, um, such as these moves in Hong Kong. But sometimes it seems to be just scattershot attacking everything um, that China does without kind of focusing uh, specifically on problematic issues and things that need to be done. Things like the virus and trade are all bundled together when there can be moments when you would just talk about Hong Kong, just talk about Xinjiang. And then if you're going to talk about broader things, talk about the trend that Xi Jinping is taking the country, but but steer clear of anything that looks like just uh, sinophobia that could lead to also uh, distaste for people of Chinese descent, which is what the White House has been doing, which is really disturbing. Yang Yang, you wanted to get in on this um, for, with, with Jeff. Yes. Hi, this is Yang Cheng. So I have a quick comment and I have a question on, on, on this. So I think there is a difference between state response and response in general. And what we have been seeing is there are also collective solidarity movements between the Hong Kong protesters and say like Black Lives Matter and other indigenous people's struggles across the world. And I myself am seeing that as this kind of collective or transnational collective organizing beyond the state and outside the state as one of the sources for hope. And, and on that note, I have a question for Jeff, because I think uh, when, when a lot of the dominant rhetoric from the political sphere with regards to the Hong Kong protests or Hong Kong as what, what has been and, and I guess still is the, the freest place on Chinese territory, is it has this space to criticize the Chinese government. But that's not just... All, all, all what freedom means, right? Hong Kong also is this vibrant place for for organizing for for all kinds of discussions with regards to labor rights, gender rights, etc. That have very few space to do so on the mainland. So I was wondering whether or not Jeff, you could comment a bit about what would the future for such civil society in Hong Kong be after the law. Yeah, that's great. That brings in a lot of really um, interesting, and I'm glad to have anything that seems hopeful at this moment is um, to be seized on. I mean, there are there, there there are some very interesting discussions going on in those ways, and I would just sort of give a shout out to the Laosan uh, group, which has published a lot of things trying to go from uh, a left perspective on talking about things like solidarity with protests in other places. Um, I would say that while while there's a lot for Americans to focus on parallels, um, there are images coming out of Portland that looked very much like images out of uh, Hong Kong. There are parallels between the movements in Hong Kong have largely been against police brutality, and those link up to things um, in the U.S. 
But to me, I think in, in, in other ways, what's been going on in Hong Kong is much more of a kind of recolonization. And I think in thinking about what the future lies, the, the model is Hong Kong protests will largely uh, resemble anti-colonial movements, which can take a very, very long time. I also see the Carrie Lam as in some ways like the kind of proxy leaders of states within the quasi-empire-like Soviet uh, system. Uh, so the, 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 the state of Hong Kong, I think, uh, can also be understood um, historically as having some parallels to situations like Poland in the early 1980s when solidarity was crushed. But yet in those places, those are examples of ways in which um, civil society was kept alive in subtle and different forms by people using creative methods um, of power, power of the powerless techniques. So I think another place to look for what could happen going forward, and I think this might be a way to keep things alive um, for issues like different kinds of discussions of gender than are possible uh, on the mainland, is to try to figure out what spaces do remain for discussions that maybe even if they're not challenging the state on its policy specifically toward Hong Kong, make the most of an expanded civil society the way people did on the mainland in the early and the late uh, 1990s, well, the 1980s before the, the, the massacre in the 1990s. Anytime there's a space that opens up, it's important for people to make whatever kind of use they can of it. Um, let's bring... Uh... Molly Roberts into this as we're talking about uh, the difference between what the government says and what the people uh, can hear both uh, in Hong Kong and in the wider part of, of China. Um, Margaret Roberts is associate professor in the political science department and the Holly Chio Glue Data Center Science Institute at the University of California, San Diego. She directs the China Data Lab at the 21st Century China Center at UCSD. She recently appeared on Sub China's Seneca podcast um, to discuss how China controls its internet. And her recent blog post from the China Data Lab investigates an increase in support for the Chinese government during the coronavirus pandemic. Last year, she and Dr. Jen Pan analyzed why the NBA and other companies failed to push back on Chinese censorship in the Washington Post. Um, Molly uses text analysis, statistics, and digital data to better understand political communication and Chinese politics. She's sort of the opposite end of, of, of Jeff Wasserstrom in coming from the historical humanities approach, but they link up in really interesting ways. Um, many of listeners here know her groundbreaking work with Gary King and Jennifer Pan from 2013 on how censorship in China allows government criticism but silences collective expression, which is speaking really directly to Yang-Yang's point. Um, her 2018 book, Censored, Distraction, and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall, was a foreign affairs best book received the Goldsmith Book Award and was ranked the best book in human rights and IT and politics by the American Political Science Association. We had a terrific conversation about Censored back in March, and I'm delighted to welcome her back to New Books. Um, Molly, your work emphasizes how China uses very different tools to control access to information. And, and I've applied your categories of deterrence, distraction, and dilution as I've been accessing recent news. Um, 
I'm wondering how a quantitative political scientist focused on communication and censorship is looking at this moment in politics right now. Yeah, thanks, Susan, and thanks so much for having me. Um, so most of my research is really focused on the Chinese public, how they consume information, how information is controlled, um, and sort of the political implications of this. So I'll sort of start with this finding um, that we had on in a China Data Lab blog post um, where we've run a series of online surveys over the past year. And what we see is even though these surveys are targeted at the same types of people, we see increasing amounts of trust um, in, in the government and also in the, the political system over the past year. Um, and this might be surprising to someone sort of reading the news right now. Um, we've seen a lot of discussion in the U.S. media about um, uh, that, you know, the, the um, outbreak of COVID initially in China was not handled particularly well. Um, we've also seen um, a lot of um, sort of very increasing assertive and repressive state um, as uh, in with, with Hong Kong, but also in the mainland. Um, as Jeff was describing uh, just now. And so this might be sort of surprising for, for those sort of reading the news about China and the U.S. But I think sort of this is reflecting a few different um, things that have been happening recently um, within China and also um, in the U.S. So first is uh, what we've seen is that China has been relatively successful at containing COVID-19, um, um, and particularly in contrast with the United States and other nations around the world. Um, this The virus is really under control um, uh, in, in China. Um, the second is that um, like I discuss a lot in my book, is that uh, the Chinese government really does have this ability to control the narrative about some of these events happening in the world, especially within mainland China. Um, so there are many tools um, that the government uses to control information online, including deleting blog posts, reordering search results, um, you know, arresting um, dissidents or um, uh, uh, bloggers, um, putting um, propaganda online, online propaganda, um, and all of these tools uh, really control what people have access to and what people tend to read. And so certainly, um, you know, with respect to COVID, with respect to Hong Kong, the uh, Chinese government has had a lot of control in how these issues are framed. And the last thing um, that I would say um, I, I think might be related to this increase in trust is um, is U.S. policy. Um, so U.S. Uh, policy towards China has certainly been tougher on China, um, but it's also sometimes um, been sort of anti-Chinese generally. Um, the, the language of Trump, the treatment of scholars and students within the U.S. Um, isn't just focused on certain Chinese government policies, but also seems to be uh, sort of broader. And I think that this has... Um, uh, this is why in the survey, for example, we see with the increase in trust of the government, we also see this decrease in perception of the U.S. among um, our, the respondents. Um, and I'll point to sort of an interesting working paper by um, Jen Pan and Yiqing Xu, which shows that um, they study Chinese students studying in the U.S. And they show that experience with racism in the U.S., anti-Chinese racism in the U.S., sort of decreases their views of democracy. And I think that, um, that this is something we should uh, really pay attention to and, um, and, and be worried about.
Thanks so much, Molly. Uh, Jeff, when you were uh, on the podcast the last time, you actually talked about free speech in Hong Kong as sort of having an effect on the world, as as it not just being about Hong Kong. And uh, Molly, what what Jeff said was something to the effect of the ability of the press to to function in Hong Kong meant that some information was received by people on the mainland, people outside of, of China and Hong Kong. And, and I, I guess I'm wondering, Molly, from your perspective, whether or not, whether or not that's an important function that's being lost. Is that one of the connectors between what's happening in Hong Kong and what you're seeing in the numbers that you're looking at? Yeah, so it's hard to say if that is the connector between what's happening in Hong Kong and the numbers, but I do think it's an incredibly important point and one that will have a big impact. So if you think about the media around the world, they only have sort of a certain bandwidth or a certain attention span for what's going on within China, right? So US media, media worldwide, they have a certain sort of amount of text that they're going to they're going to sort of spill on on what's happening in China, but having as and, and I, I was I actually had a, a chance to listen to the, that great podcast about Vigil uh, with you and Jeff. Um, having that sort of um, space within Hong Kong of journalistic freedom was really important because there's a lot of of um, attention to China within that space. And, and yet it's still, um, or it was before um, these new series of events was still relatively uncontrolled. And so um, that was really important at sort of generating investigative journalism, generating um, a lot of information about what was going on within China for the rest of the world. And then also some of that would spill into China. And I think that that is going to be a big loss if we see a lot of um, uh uh, sort of some more uh, more heavy-handed repression of that or, or uh, more intense self-censorship, as I think we're already seeing um, in Hong Kong. Yeah, so um, you know, to the media world more broadly, and I guess the, you know, the global public, this might not be such a big deal, but since this is a podcast about books, uh, it's worth pointing out that Hong Kong is also a center for publishing about China, published in both English and in Chinese, and it really has been an oasis where, for example, translations of, of my own books, maybe perhaps of some of the other panelists as well, um, it can be done in Chinese when they can't be translated in Chinese you know, in, in the mainland. And so it's not really clear what will happen to that, but that's an important role that Hong Kong has played about China knowledge generally, which is also threatened by recent changes. Well, how are you feeling, Jim, about being able to do your own research? Um, are, do you feel that you'll be going back to China? Do you are you confident of that? Are you sad that you won't? What, what? How will this impact the kind of work that you can do? And I would address this to the other panelists as well. But but maybe you started off. I mean, what what effect does this have on on the research produced in English, published by the presses that all of you are publishing for? Well, for my own part, I've actually had trouble getting visas for the last 20 years. Um, it hasn't been complete banned. And maybe on another podcast, we could talk about that. It's, it's a much more complicated situation than you know, whitelist or blacklist. But uh, I, in a way that was sort of liberating because I stopped worrying about visa access. And now I don't think any of us are worrying about visa access. We're worrying about whether if we do go to Hong Kong or, or the mainland, we'll be detained and arrested, um, you know, like the Canadian diplomats 
or not. Um, obviously, for young scholars, it's a real problem because you, particularly in, uh, in, in, in social sciences where you need to interact with people and, and so on, but even for historians who need archives. Uh, but, but, but in a way, I think it's, at least for me, my own access to getting into China is the least of my least of my worries at this point, and and I think that's pretty much true for a lot of people who work on these really you know, terrifying emergent issues. Yeah. Yeah. So I I mean this is an example of things changing. I I was just becoming reconciled to not being able to go to the mainland anymore. Not that I've been banned, not that I've had visa problems, but the idea was that I couldn't see going there under uh, this political order. But I assumed Hong Kong would continue to be a safe space. Uh, and now it doesn't feel that way at all, which is um, personally personally heartbreaking. Um, but I do think this idea of, I mean, it's important to watch what can still be published there. I, I really think Jim's point was very important. And it's true about uh, journalism as well as about books. It's both of these things. I think we need to really try to listen to uh, the journalism coming out of Hong Kong, the best of it. People like Mary Hui, who's writing for Quartz, just brilliant. I've been um, tweeting that I sometimes get more out of a tweet by her than I do from an op-ed by a leading columnist. Um, It's really wonderful. And they're uh, they're doing daring work. But there are starting to be some journalists who are uh, the New York Times is moving some of its Hong Kong operations to Seoul because of the deteriorating um, situation. Uh, Something that we should have, I think, paid more attention to was the latest round of journalist um, problems in Beijing, the cutting of access. Um, There have been back and forth and there have been visa problems for journalists with um, the mainland from from the West for quite a while. But this was the first time that an expulsion was said, and you can't just go to Hong Kong uh, and report from there. And Chris Buckley, one of the very best um, reporters, period, covering China, um, had to leave Beijing earlier in his career, but could re, re uh, could report from Hong Kong. And now he was banned. He was blocked from going to Hong Kong. And earlier than that, Victor Mallet of the Financial Times became um, the first uh, journalists were the major um, newspaper uh, from the West who couldn't, uh, who was, who had to leave Hong Kong. So that's deteriorating, and there is uh, deterioration in the publishing of works uh, in Hong Kong. Um, uh, just the, it's getting harder to get those translations. Um, Taiwan is becoming um, the only place to do that, and also there are things coming out of um, being taken out of bookstores and libraries. And I think that's all to watch. Um, I do think. As much as it matters to me and it matters to to others on this program, what access we have, we have to keep remembering that the people being hit hardest by this are people within the country themselves. And um, sometimes there's a false interest, I think, in in certain sense in censorship and um, and danger and others. The high, the biggest danger is still to people who um, are are from these places. And the biggest censorship issues to watch, I, I'm convinced, are people operating from within there. Um, the first moves in the libraries to pull books were ones by people like Joshua Wong. In the press, I sometimes see people saying, how much longer will you be able to read 1984 in Hong Kong? Well, you can read 1984 in Beijing right now. What the government cares about most is things that 
undermine its own flooding, to use Molly's wonderful word for this, flooding of information. They're trying to control information that's about China or about parts of the People's Republic of China. That's what they're focusing on, not the not dystopian novels that people might read, not even intellectual work that's not about China. They're focusing really on the things that are specifically undermining the story they're telling. Molly, let, let, let's talk a little bit about this complexity of what people can access on the mainland, what our fetishization of what can be published here uh, and elsewhere. What, how do you connect to these things and how, how, to what extent do you see this as something that is internal to China and the way that they set up their uh, access, or this is something that can be affected by information from from without. And how would people access that with the uh, with the various forms of censorship? Yeah, so I think that um, um, you know mostly what we've been talking about here is sort of an increase in fear, right? That um, that you know, if there's going to be an increase in fear among journalists reporting, you know, Western journalists reporting in China. Uh, uh, Chinese journalists pointed in China, journalists in Hong Kong. Um, and I think that that's a really, um, you know, a very, very important thing to pay attention to. And one of the reasons why it's so important is because it has downstream effects on what people access. And sometimes I think we forget to make that link or, or people sort of forget to make that link when they, when they, um, when they think about this. So, um, if someone is not reporting a story, for example, within a newspaper or is not doing the investigative journalism on a particular topic, and that article just doesn't get printed, then the downstream effect of that is it makes it more difficult for consumers of information to know about that topic, to be aware that, of something that is going on um, downstream. And that's what I call it in the book friction. So the idea behind friction is that um, you may um, uh, you may not come across certain types of information just because um, it's not very convenient for you to access. So um, as consumers of information, we are very affected by the cost of access. We're very affected by um, the amount of time it takes to search um, to search things out or to find information about particular topics. And one of the ways in which um, censorship in, in um, China works is that it tries to make certain types of information a little bit more difficult to get access to. The Great Firewall blocks websites, uh, uh, blocks foreign websites uh, from Chinese IP addresses. You can get across it, but it's difficult to do and it takes time and money, a little bit of cost to do that. Um, but from the journalist side, if journalists are not reporting um, on certain uh, topics or events and putting these um, in papers or, um, you know, following up on Jim's point, if books aren't getting translated to be more accessible in um, in Chinese, then it makes it more difficult for people to access that information. And they may just not become aware of those topics um, at, at all. And what's dangerous about friction is that people don't know what they're missing, right? So people aren't aware of um, uh, certain events that have, ha- that have happened, um, or they're not aware of certain types of information, not because um, they are they are fearful of accessing that information, but simply because it hasn't kind of come across their newsfeed or come across uh, 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 within the media. Um, and so I think that that's sort of a dangerous downstream effect of what we've been talking about so far in this program. Yeah, question for Molly. Yeah. Um, 
and this actually brings in Hong Kong together with the censorship story. The one of the most infamous clauses of the new Hong Kong national security law is Article 38, uh, which, by according to various people's readings, uh, seems to, as as people put it, extraterritorialize the uh, Chinese government's and, and parties' uh, aims to control the narrative. In other words, it says that if you say something that is seen as subversive or separatist about Hong Kong, but implying it could be about other sensitive issues in China, um, then you will be seen as violating this law and, and can be uh, prosecuted for that in Hong Kong and presumably in mainland China as well. So uh, there's obviously in the current age, as we're going back to school and we'll be teaching online to students in China and elsewhere, and as our online teaching systems are set up to record stuff and send stuff around the world. A lot of people have been thinking about this and, you know, in theory, at least, uh, it, there could be problems with this because, you know, speech in, cla- in the classroom and the kind of materials will need to circulate to China, um, you know, could in theory get people in trouble according to Article 38 or the internet law that exists and so on. So I wanted to ask Molly if she sees this as, uh, you know, how does she interpret that uh, that Article 38? Is this something she might see as an effort to make the deterrent effect of Chinese censorship function globally. Yeah, so I I think it's very difficult to know how that Article 38 will be implemented. Um, And, um, you know, one of the sort of... um, features of the Chinese censorship is uh, is the idea of or, or the censorship of the, the Chinese government is the idea of trying to make um, the the laws and the regulations somewhat ambiguous as to sort of instill a broad scope over which things could be applied even if they aren't enforced entirely, right? And so I think that that's something that's also going on within this national security law. And there's been some research in political science showing that that kind of ambiguity can really drive self-censorship. Um, and so I think we might see uh, self-censorship kind of coming from that. Um, I think, um, you know, particularly, I think I certainly see it, especially the way it is worded as an effort to export self-censorship, um, not just to uh, uh, China proper, but also to the to the broader broader world, um, and I. Um sort of with respect to this idea of, of online teaching and the problems with um, um, teaching and recording inform, uh, you know, classes um, in the U.S. about China um, with students in the mainland, I do think this is an issue. And I think it's really important, though, that um, as academics studying China, um, teaching classes on China, that um, we do not self-censor about um, you know that we we report um, on research findings on what is going on happenings within China on, on research about China, um, you know faithfully and um, and and show all of the sides of it that we would have shown um, uh, regardless. Um, but yet we still need to make sure that everyone who is um, uh, you know taking classes um, is aware of laws and risks uh, that might be associated with taking um, those classes um, online and um, and be um, make sure that we communicate those risks um, uh, to students within the classes. And Molly, can you just spell out for those people who have not been paying attention to this particular issue of Zoom and Chinese students, 
what the repercussions of speaking in the classroom have been thus far and what the fears are in terms of, of, of how they, they might form uh, serve as a tool of, of repression? Um, so I, because this law is new and teaching online uh, to students in the mainland is new, I'm not sure that we know very much about what those repercussions would be. Um, but because the law, as it is stated, is um, you know applies broadly, um, I think that there are risks, and um, and we we just need to make people aware that there are risks. Uh, uh, Jim and Jeff, you want to make a couple yeah. of more comments here? Just a very quick thing on that. Um, if people are interested in that issue, the Association for Asian Studies has just released a sort of a statement and set of guidelines um, about thinking about remote teaching, uh, online security, data management, all these kind of things in the in the current era. And it doesn't have prescriptions because, as Molly just said, we really don't know, um, but there are worrisome things. And so it, it suggests ways to think about it, both for university administrators and for individual faculty uh, and some principals. So I would urge people to have a look uh, at that. And we can provide the link, perhaps, and the blog. Absolutely. Jeff? So I, I won't say much because I do want to get um, hear more from, from Yang Yang. And I think actually Yang Yang's perspective on somebody who's communicating with her mother in, in China while saying things outside of China that um, are, are taboo is, is a very fascinating, very important thing to, if you haven't been reading her essays, uh, you've been missing out, uh, missing out on a lot. But I just think, because some people respond to me by saying, so what's new about this? I mean, it's a repressive state. Of course, they've always been watching what you're doing. A lot of things are quite new. Um, last year, there were panels on Tiananmen, uh, the anniversary of 30th. It was the first time I'd been in those panels where I was told they were going to be recorded, but people in the audience, their faces would not be shown when they were asking questions because it could endanger them if they were especially from China and were caught on film uh, asking a certain kinds of question. There, some of this really is is different. When I started doing Tiananmen panels, nobody suggested I was being brave by doing that. Nobody said in the early 1990s when I was a, a young scholar, oh, are you worried about putting your career at risk? Nobody thought about that. It was something that you were careful what you did when you were inside of China, but there wasn't a sense of it um, going further. And admittedly, people working on some topics always have had to be more careful and have felt more dangerous. People working on Xinjiang, Tibet, and also Falun Gong have faced different kinds of pressures. But now it's being spread, I think, within the Chinese studies community. And I think it's absolutely, I double down completely on what Molly said. We need whatever the situation to really be very mindful of not uh, self-censoring uh, ourselves. And I think many people within Chinese studies do not uh, self-censor themselves, but it's something you have to continually, I think, recommit yourself uh, to saying as much as you can without endangering uh, people you've worked with, being mindful of those kinds of things, but really trying to avoid um, self-censorship. And different people face different risks from it. That's also important to realize. I feel quite free not worrying about self-censorship. I don't have family members in China. I don't have personal reasons that make it... Um, 
that would make it a, a hit to my personal life if I couldn't go to China, except for wanting to go there. And I think people have different constraints on what they can say, but trying to be avoid self-censorship without endangering others is, is just crucial. Thanks. Let's, let's, you've already heard from Yang Yang Chen, but let me introduce her. She is the most unlikely guest to new books on political science because she is an accomplished particle physicist, postdoctoral research associate at Cornell University, and member of the CMS experiment at the Lards Hadron Collider. Uh, she complements this impressive physics scholarship with writing on Chinese history, politics, and culture for outlets like Foreign Policy, China File, and the New York Times. She authors the Science and China column for SupChina, which is a New York-based digital publication covering contemporary China. And if you haven't seen it, you should look at SupChina. It has, it has so many things and so many resources for yourself and for your students. So sorry for that plug, but I think it's really important to take a look at it. Uh, her PhD thesis on dark matter won the Springer Thesis Award. In 2019, she was a panelist for a BBC News discussion on the superpower status of China. And in April, her stunningly personal opinion piece in the Sunday New York Times demonstrated how the personal is political as she assessed her mother's experience of the pandemic in Wuhan through the eyes of Chinese media and her own life experiences. In June, she wrote again for the New York Times, this time mining her own experience of living in Chicago with a parent in China to interrogate how the Chinese government sees a political opportunity in the continuing emotional appeal of Chinese medicine. Um, this month, we're recording in, at the end of June, uh, July 2020, Yang Yang's article in The Guardian highlighted how, after the new security law in Hong Kong was enacted, relocation policies proposed Western governments uh, proposed by Western governments often focused on the privileged few, viewing immigrants not as human beings but as a source of capital and labor. Um, after enjoying her brilliant writing in the popular press, I'm, I'm pleased to welcome her to new books in political science. Um, Yang Yang, why don't you start us off with what you have been thinking since you're at the intersection of science and the Chinese state, you're at the intersection of living here uh, and researching and working, but also having family uh, back on the mainland. Uh, tell us what you're thinking about the politics and political developments um, or economic, social, cultural, scientific <laughs> uh, as you're as you're seeing it right now, that's why you're here. We 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 have a great political scientist here. We have two phenomenal historians. So so tell us what you're thinking about China right now, and and what we need to be thinking about China right now. Uh, thank you so much, Susan. As you mentioned, I am indeed a very um, unlikely member of this panel, and I feel deeply honored and humbled to be a part of this distinguished um, group. And, and to talk a little bit about from my, my experience and my perspective as a Chinese person born and raised in China, and I came to the U.S. in 2009 for graduate school and have been living and working here since. And I first started writing about China in 2017, and that was partly in, in response to dramatic events that happened in the world the year before and a way to reorient my life and think about what are my civic duties as a scientist. And the time I 
that was my impression growing up in China. And that was my experience with my uh, science colleagues, whether they're from China, the US, Europe, anywhere, that many view science as this apolitical endeavor, that they are new scientists or neutral explorers of nature and being engaged in politics is somehow tainting the purity of their intellectual pursuit and compromising academic rigor. And I find that perspective both prevalent, but also deeply flawed. Scientific truth should not bend to political ideology. However, science as a human endeavor, and in particular as a primarily government-funded human endeavor, is inherently political. And scientists have a professional, moral, and ethical obligation to evaluate the social cost of their work. And that type of social cost can be immediate, as what was discussed just now, um, as Molly mentioned about uh, censorship, about tools of surveillance and political control, which we'll hear more uh, from Jim with regards to this high-tech surveillance state that the Chinese government has been piloting and perfecting in the northwestern region of Xinjiang towards primarily uh, Uyghur Muslim minorities. And what Jeff mentioned in the beginning, what the people of Hong Kong are fearing. And these are the very immediate effects of new technology, the way they are being developed, the way they are being used. And they do come with a social cost. However, I do think that our thinking about these cannot be limited to just these specific types of technology. I'm a particle physicist. I study the most fundamental branch of science. But in that sense, I still need to evaluate more insidious forms of complicity. For example, scientific progress can serve national propaganda. And the Chinese government has been touting that for as long as the republic was founded. And scientists, by taking funding from the state, also become complicit in the state's actions. And so since I started writing about the intersections of science and the Chinese state and its global implications in 2017, over the past few years, of course, a lot in the world has changed. And there has been more attention paid to these dangers from new technology and in particular in China's roles in it. But I have been somewhat disappointed in some of the dominant rhetoric that are seeing these problems as uniquely Chinese. As uh, Molly mentioned just now as well, there is this rising um, anti-China rhetoric in the West, in, um, in the U.S., among politicians, as well as in the public. And a lot of that has been and exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, how the name of a whole country can be used as a slur and how a whole people and ethnicity can be viewed as some form of geopolitical tool and not as human beings. And we are seeing certain members of the, uh, of the U.S. government who may use certain tokenized slogans like standing with Hong Kong or standing with the Uyghur people as a way to assume moral superiority while using appropriating another people's cause as some kind of cover for their own oppressive policies at home. And so I think these are things that deeply trouble me because if the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything, it is that nations and people are all porous entities 
that no country can build a wall around itself and keep itself safe, that science cannot be in ownership of or in service to a state. That is an inherently dangerous notion. Coming back to my background as a particle physicist, Susan mentioned that my PhD thesis is on a, on a type of search for dark matter, and that has been a major part of my scientific career for the past decade. And what we are, when we search for dark matter, we are looking for the signals from the creation of the universe passed down through billions of years. And we are creating similar conditions in the lab to match these signals, to look for these most fundamental structures and principles of our collective existence. In the earlier discussion, we talked a lot about books, about the archive, about libraries. And in a way, I see my role as a particle physicist. I'm also a historian and a record keeper of the universe. So that translates into my view of writing about China, about the world today, that I'm also sending a little signal, a little heat, a little light into the vastness. That is a way to assert my existence, writing as an act of living. And I'm also hoping that not as an individual, but collectively, if we collect enough of us, and then future generations will be able to look back at the history that is being written now and find their genealogy. Well, that is stunningly beautiful. And if you questioned why you should be on this podcast, as you did in an email earlier in this discussion... <laughs> There is no question why you're on this podcast. And uh, as somebody who's written about science and politics in a very different way, um, I, I truly appreciate thinking about them together and thinking about scientists themselves as, as political actors. And you've said so much. Um, so, But let me go back to something that you said at the beginning, not to ignore everything that came after um, about the technology and about being very aware of what where money is coming from and why scientists are being asked to create certain tools that will be then used to dehumanize and deprive people of human rights or track them down and, uh, and put them in a camp or, or murder them. So what would you see, what should be done? Uh, should... What should be done by scientists? Should they refuse this money? Should they refuse, I'm thinking of Solzhenitsyn's The First Circle, where they're developing the tools and they know that it's for destruction? Should they refuse to do it? Uh, should we, i.e. all consumers everywhere, refuse to purchase? What is there? Is there some way into that in some sort of concrete way? And then I know Molly has a question too, so... Uh, this is an incredibly important and incredibly difficult question. And I think about this a lot, and I do not pretend that I have an answer. I think there are, there are different layers to this, right? I think one thing that is very important to note in the beginning is that we shouldn't view, paint people with just like a singular adjective, they're just good or evil. We're all complicated human beings. We live in an unjust system and we all make our compromises in order to live. And so for individual scientists who do work on 
technology that are dual use or can be directly used in forms of oppression and political control, it is true that they are also contributing to their own oppression. And that is a deeply tragic truth. And I think on at the first level, it is very um, prevalent. I've, I've heard this from, from colleagues and friends as well, that they are not unaware of this ethical dilemma, but they would think that there, there is a little bit of technical arrogance or technical innocence that comes to it that they can just focus on that technical piece of the problem and then in some way inoculate themselves from the broader ethical discussion. And then, of course, there are um, political systems that, that come into play that would con- in some way constrain and affect how much space scientists can have to have con- to conscientiously object. But I want to caution that because I think a lot of uh, the discussions that are happening in, let's say, just for example, in the U.S. with regards to technology, and as I mentioned in the, uh, earlier as well, to see this as a, as the dangers as uniquely Chinese because of its authoritarian political system. China is a, a has an. Con- con- authoritarian political system that exacerbates these issues and accelerates some of them. But that problem is not uniquely Chinese, and it cannot be solved by domestic policy within China or by U.S. policy towards China. It cannot be solved by any country alone. And we really need to rethink community beyond the state. We need to rethink the role of science and the state, that science is not in service to the state, but should be in service of humanity. And we need to construct these kinds of transnational governance of science and transnational ethical frameworks. So, Yang Yang, first, that was just a fascinating and, and also really um, beautiful perspective um, that you just um, articulated. Um, I, you know, I, I think this point that science is political is a really interesting one and obviously extremely important. Um, we've also seen science be politicized recently, um, particularly with respect to um, uh U.S.-China uh, academic collaborations, uh, Chinese students studying within the U.S., um, and this type of academic exchange has, you know, been happening for decades at this point, um, has been, I believe, a very fruitful academic exchange where um, you have people from China are coming to the U.S., people from the U.S. are going to China and working together on very important problems um, that, as you say, serve humanity. How do we get away from the politicization of these types of collaborations and continue this academic exchange, which I believe is so important, um, without, um, you know, uh, serving um, the, the tension between um, the U.S. and China right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that um, you mentioned this. Um, I think I think this is actually a, a, a really complicated issue, and I think sometimes the, the the dominant discussions around it may be more focused on on singular aspects of it. Of um, I think. First of all, there is the issue of racial bias and ethnic-based ethnic discrimination. And that is not unique to Chinese people or Chinese scientists. And that kind of societal factor has an effect on anybody who is not white living in this country and 
and it does color the policies around it. But secondly, I think how because of this racial hierarchy that does exist, how that can be used as a way to obscure other issues that are not necessarily related to race. So when we think about U.S. policies towards Chinese scientists and students coming to the U.S. and in terms of scientific collaborations with China, we are seeing how there is this kind of dichotomy that is happening. On one hand, people say, oh, this is um, Yellow Peril 2.0, or this is just um, racist and anti-China. And there are racist and anti-China elements to this. On the other hand, there are people who revert this statement saying we are not being racist towards Chinese people, we are only criticizing the Chinese government and recognizing the dangers posed by a political entity. And there is truth to that as well, but both are incomplete. And I think the fundamental flaw in this kind of argument is an overemphasis on the Chineseness, as if this is some kind of an exotic entity that can be extracted and isolated and put into a bubble and viewed from the outside in relationship to it. And that idea is fundamentally flawed, and that is antithetical to not just scientific collaboration and progress, but just to the the general well-being and, and the collective future of humanity in general. And so I really think that this dialogue, um, this rhetoric of great power competition of science as a tool of national greatness that is being touted not just by the Chinese government, but also by the U.S. government, this idea of uh, leadership or supremacy are all not not just dangerous, but also just phallus. And, and we should really reject that rhetoric and not have that kind of thinking obscure what is more important, the ethical dilemmas that have to be solved beyond boundaries and beyond states. I just, I had, uh, I mean, this is all so fascinating. And I think one of the things of having uh, Yang Yang as a physicist on is it makes us think about parallels to the Soviet Union. And you brought in uh, Solzhenitsyn, um, Susan, as well. I think it's kind of too bad that we've gotten out of the habit of thinking between moving between um, having Russianists and China specialists in dialogue, because I think there are a lot of things in which parallels and also contrasts are worth bringing up. And I'd love to know more about how the Fulbright program uh, fared uh, in the Soviet era, my sense is that there were that 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 might be a way to get at how some of the issues of um, of race and ethnicity show up here. That we, that there were different discussions, there were different abilities to say that, uh, and also different names for the entity. You could say you hated the Soviet Union, and nobody would assume that you were um, necessarily anti-Russian in any uh, in any kind of um, targeting of people. So that's not, I don't really have anything to say about that, but I think it's something that would be kind of um, interesting for there to be more discussion of. And I I don't know how this relates to what Jim will be saying, bringing in the issue of um, the repression of the Uyghurs. But clearly, there are ways in which the uh, policy toward ethnic difference within the Soviet Union and within China have been um, related to each other. And I think that's an area, too, where 
Um, we need to, in some ways, revive some kinds of old conversations across national borders uh, that we used to have that sort of came out of fashion. But now it seems to me there are all kinds of reasons to have more discussions uh, between Russianists and China specialists, whether it's about Putin and Xi similarity and differences, uh, different policies uh, toward inter-Asia, uh, and different policies toward um, toward science and politics and how they inter interact. So maybe that's just kind of a suggestion for a possible future bringing people from different areas uh, together into a podcast like this, Susan. Actually, um, Jeff, I since you mentioned the Soviet Union, I'll add a really quick point because um, recently we've seen in the news how the U.S. government has put restrictions on Chinese scientists and researchers and students with military explicit military affiliations or if they work on areas of technology deemed sensitive with dual use potential. And rather than commenting on that very specific policy, I want to relate to a historical background is in the 70s and 80s during the Cold War, there were scientific collaborations with Soviet nuclear scientists and and, and some of the pioneers of U.S. Um, nuclear and particle physics, some of my academic forefathers, I guess, in that sense, um, who built their academic and political capital through the Manhattan Project and nuclear program and used that as a way to open up channels of scientific collaboration with the Soviet Union. And there were Soviet scientists who would come to the U.S. and there and they would come with their political minders, and that is a condition of, of, of the Soviet Union. And, and how and how it was found out that they were political minders was because there would be people in the delegation who have never published the physics paper. And, and in that sense, um, they were that was, that process was actually constructive to peace. And the work they do were explicit, uh, some of them were basic research, but some of them were explicitly dual use. And since we are recording this conversation at the end of July, and we know that next week is the 75th anniversary of um, the the bombings of Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, and after the war, what um, Oppenheimer said was the way to actually have peace is this radical openness where the ways to make the bomb should become just openly accessible by all. And and that radical notion, which he paid a steep personal and professional price for, is actually very illuminating because we have too many ways of mutually assured destruction. It is an indictment on our collective humanity that the peace, the fragile peace I'm putting in quotation marks on this planet is being held by this notion of mutually assured destruction, which is fundamentally immoral. And, and what we really need to do and what climate change should have prompted us, and if not, the COVID-19 pandemic should have taught us, is that we really need to figure out ways, not how to perfect ways to kill each other, but how to live together. So I think that uh, one thing I want to say to all listeners is that uh, the people on this podcast are among the very best to follow on Twitter. And we're going to have all of their links uh, in the blog notes so that you can ask questions and continue this conversation. So 
although there is so much more to say about science, I'm going to move us to talking um, about a different part of, well, a related part of China uh, and bring Jim Millward, who you've already met, but formally introduce him. He is a professor of intersocietal history in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He edits the Silk Road series for the University of Chicago Press and has served on boards of the Association for Asian Studies, as well as president of the Central Eurasian Studies Society. He's an expert on the Uyghurs and Xinjiang. Millward has authored six books, including Oxford's The Silk Road, a very short introduction, uh, studies in Xinjiang, historical sources in the 17th to 20th centuries, and the classic Eurasian crosswords, a history of Xinjiang, uh, which a new edition will be coming out this fall. He's currently working on Lutes on the Silk Road, what the journey of a musical instrument tells us about cultural exchange across Eurasia, Eurasia from ancient to modern times. And I really look forward to me or one of my new book's colleagues interviewing him when the new edition comes out and also this new book. Um, in the Washington Post, Jim has critically interrogated U.S.-China relations, and his op-eds in the New York Times have assessed the power and vulnerabilities of the Chinese Communist Party and the extent to which Xi Jinping's hopes of political and cultural homogeneity not only run counter to traditional Chinese approaches to diversity, but may incite the instability that the CCP has hoped to avoid. So uh, I'm delighted to formally welcome Jim to the podcast and uh, though I know uh, we want to talk about how millions of Uyghurs from Xinjiang have been imprisoned in concentration camps, I, I also know that you have things to say about science. So uh, it's it's your call as to as to how you want to start off here. I'm going to go off script. Okay. Well, thank you. I'd like to, first of all, start by thanking you uh, for having me on this podcast with these wonderful other uh, analysts and allowing me to get involved in this uh, great conversation. And then also to thank you for introducing me as the author of Eurasian Crosswords, um, which if I had written a book called Eurasian Crosswords, I probably would have sold a lot better than Eurasian Crossroads. I'm uh, sorry, Jim. Not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> it, would, it would have been fun to have written such a book, um, maybe in retirement. But no, seriously, um, I was very struck by uh, some of the things that uh, Yang Yang uh, and Molly were, were both saying um, just now in regard to uh, technology and U.S.-China relations and our role as individuals uh, and the tendency of thinking about things in, you know, in, from, from the point of view of one's national identity, right, in, in sort of bifurcated terms. Am I Chinese? Am I American? What is national? What is the national interest? As if that's a unitary thing as opposed to being uh, a, a conglomeration of our individual interests, right? And, um, and, and the technological question really crystallizes that. Um, and in particular, you know, right now, just last week, I guess it was, the U.S. government closed down the Chinese consulate in, in Houston uh, with 72 hours notice. Uh, and then in a um, reciprocal retaliation, you know, which is completely to be expected, uh, the PRC shut the U.S. consulate uh, in Chengdu, which now leaves both countries with literally no consular representation, no offices uh, in the entire interior of either countries. Um, you know, they're all along the eastern coastline, more or less, in China. Um, 
and, and on either coast in the case of the United States. And so this is a huge blow, really, for anyone who happens to live away from those, from those, from those places. And it shows how this kind of pursuit of national interest, so-called, on the part of the United States, um, is really affecting the lives of individual people. And it's, it's, it stands in for a whole mass of recent actions by the Trump administration, uh, which are confusing, I would say, the people with the government um, and, and in, in ways that are very, very uh, hostile and very, very detrimental to both Chinese and American uh, populations. Um, and, it, and we'll just, you know, if we look at the, the Houston case, I, I read the briefing that high-level U.S. officials gave to journalists after uh, announcing that closure of the Houston consulate. And the cases that they pointed to, um, you know, after calling the Houston consulate you know, a hub of spies and so on, the cases that they pointed to both were old, for example. One involved cancer research at medical uh, institutions in Texas, um, where uh, some Chinese researchers had also been members of the Thousand Talents program, which is a, a Chinese-based program to recognize, uh, you know, China, Chinese scholars, right? Um, and then the other was by a American citizen who was, I believe, of Chinese origin, um, who developed a kind of foam that helps in floating things, um, and that's used by the oil and gas industry, right? So neither oil and gas flotational foam nor cancer research is the kind of thing I think that, you know, that people don't lay awake at night worrying about this technology getting into Chinese hands. And yet the whole conversation was framed in terms of, of national security, right, and and ramping up the sense of threat, when really what we're looking at is um, science and technology, but also, you know, protection of, of, of patents in that regard, right? So I think right now a lot of the, the tensions and even a lot of the discussion over technology, we have to be very, very you know, careful and, and to see how these arguments, how these conversations are being perhaps misused by by governments for their own propaganda purposes, whether we're talking China or the United States. Now, that said, uh, in Xinjiang, um, we do have a case where we've seen uh, you know, technology being put to very terrifying uses uh, indeed um, you know, over the past few years, uh, and in particular with the rolling out of a, of a surveillance system uh, in Xinjiang that relies on a, on a big database of, of bio data and behavioral data. It has DNA, retinal scan, all this kind of thing, which people may have heard about. Uh, and then an, an artificial intelligence system, which looks at, at information in that database and, and crunches the data to predict whether uh, what I call the indigenous peoples of Xinjiang, to include Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and others, mainly minorities who are culturally uh, uh, Muslim, to, to predict whether they are uh, potentially guilty of crimes or not. So this is very much sci-fi kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's worth noting that most of those technologies, however, are also in common use in other places as well. So again, as Yang Yang said, it's not uniquely a, a Chinese uh, issue here, even though what we've seen in Xinjiang is a unique, I be believe, for the 21st century uh, application towards an assimilative uh, program with regard to, 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 the, to the Uyghurs. 
Um, Jim, I'm going to interrupt you just yeah. for a minute because we've got some people who are going to need a slight refresher on right. who the Uyghurs are. And, you know, recently in The Guardian, you said that what is being done to the Uyghurs meets the definition of genocide and you were calling for targeted solutions. So just just give us the short version of what's going on there to sort of remind people. I think they've seen it and heard it, but I think that people's bandwidths are so uh, stressed that I don't know that they're fully processing the enormity of the human rights violations. Certainly, yes, and that's important to do. So very, very quickly in 1949, the People's Republic of China uh, took over Xinjiang from uh there was a regime in the north that was highly Soviet-influenced but was known as the Eastern Turkestan Republic, and it was actually collaborating with the old nationalist Chinese or the Guomindang in the southern part of Xinjiang. Uh, and there were various other local interest groups that had various degrees of, uh, of influence in, in the region at that time. The PLA took it over. Uh, the Qing Empire beforehand had, had conquered and colonized the area. And so, like the Soviet Union was trying to avoid looking like an empire, uh, the PRC likewise wanted to avoid looking like an empire. Uh, and so it created systems that gave nominal and, in some cases, real autonomy, uh, so, so nominal political autonomy, some real cultural autonomy to peoples in Xinjiang, as in, as in Tibet. And this is why Xinjiang is formally known as the Xinjiang Uyghur uh, Autonomous Region. Um, and you know, over subsequent decades, that pluralist approach kind of waxed and waned. Um, it, it waned very much during the Cultural Revolution, the so-called you know, the Maoist years, the high, high point of that. Um, but it really sort of characterized a, uh, I suppose you could call it a, a, a communist, um, a communist block approach to diversity, quite different from that of the liberal Western democracies, but nonetheless an effort to recognize and provide a place for minorities or for uh, cultural, you know, culturally different peoples uh, in these large post-colonial structures of the Soviet Union and, and the PRC. And what we've seen in, in recent years uh, is, I think, because of disappointment on the part of the Chinese Communist Party that 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 cultural difference hasn't gone away, uh, and then uh, you know, with with economic changes with globalization, with, with, with changes of standard of living and so on. Uh, uh, the, the frustration has led to the Chinese Communist Party to change its approach from the traditional PRC approach to diversity to a much more assimilative one. Uh, and this is particularly the case under uh, the rule of Xi Jinping as general secretary of the party. Uh, there's a lot of uh, content in his whole China dream idea that actually turns on an idea of a, of a unitary kind of Chinese national identity, which really closes off a lot of space for being a PRC citizen, but culturally uh, not a northern a northern Han. And I think whether it's Tibet or or or, or Xinjiang or even you know Cantonese speaking Hong Kong, um, one of the things we're seeing that links all of those areas uh, is this. Um, effort on the part of the party to create a, a homogeneous cultural Chinese person who is also politically loyal uh, to the party. So anyway, what has happened then with this kind of ground, this underlying shift in, in approach um, combined with ongoing um, sporadic unrest 
um, some of it uh, politically, some of it what we would call terrorism, most of it not uh, in the region, uh, has been a, a new approach from 2016 or so, 2016, 2017. And this has involved very intense grid policing, um, which lays out 500 meter squares and puts a lot more uh, boots on the ground and uh, police boxes, uh, makes people mutually responsible for others in their regions. Uh, and then the high tech surveillance involving uh, facial recognition cameras all over the place, um, other kinds of surveillance, uh, technological surveillance, phone sniffing, um, lots of kind of, uh, they're, they're called, I forget what they're called, digital doors or something that can, you know, read your phone and read your face and read your retina as you pass through. And then all of that information is, is passed up to, uh, into the database, uh, the database with predictive policing, as I mentioned. Um, and all of that has been used in aid of a program known as uh, educational transformation and huge so-called educational transformation centers were built from 2017 on. And these are the internment camps, essentially. And one can see pictures of them. They have uh, very high walls with a, with, a, with a perimeter fence outside of that, razor wire, guard towers. They're prisons, really. Uh, and over a million Uyghurs have been put through those camps. At the same time, about 550,000 uh, new prosecutions through the legal system have been done. And those are people going straight to, to prison, not into these camps. Um, and so we have the surveillance, we have the uh, you know, internment camps with a, with a very rigorous indoctrination regime going on inside uh, and, and a physical and psychological torture as well. At the same time, there's been a ramping up of the campaign, uh, the, the birth campaign, a birth control campaign, or what's really a birth suppression campaign now uh, in Xinjiang, uh, with uh, with forced or highly coerced uh, insertions of IUDs, sterilizations, uh, separation of families, uh, all resulting in a uh, radical reduction of the birth rate uh, over the last few years in Uyghur areas of Xinjiang. And there are documents that have come out that mention these targets and, and, and celebrate uh, the successes of this program. And all of this is happening at precisely the same time that the one-child policy has been relaxed in other parts of China. And in fact, there's been a, a, a pro-birth policy on the part where directed at Han Chinese, right? And, and it's that contrast that's really so striking because it's clearly an effort to reduce numbers of Uyghurs while increasing numbers of Han. And the same thing is going on in Xinjiang through, uh, through uh, official campaigns for uh, settlement. Uh, there are organizations in Xinjiang that are still recruiting Han to come in uh, and live and work in the region, offering good salaries, pensions, free education, even while the state is moving Uyghurs out to do factory labor in other parts of, of, uh, of China. Uh, as well as in Xinjiang. And that's the, I guess, the fourth part of this big campaign, this uh, coerced labor. Um, it's, uh, there does seem to be, for many people at least, if they are able to, uh, not well, in the camps, um, going through this indoctrination program, uh, those who are able to get through it without uh, being given more demerits in their scores 
are able to graduate from this educational transformation system into a, a labor system. In some cases, these are factories right next to the camps or, uh, or nearby. In some cases, there are factories in industrial parks in other parts of Xinjiang. In some cases, there are factories in other parts of China. But we've seen tens of thousands um, of people moved to eastern China. Um, over 100,000 at least moved uh, to factory work from the camps inside of, of Xinjiang. And so this is really the, 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 you know, this forced labor component in a way seems to be something of a, of a culmination of this whole campaign. What's really unfortunate about it uh, and, and is going to have big implications towards uh, China's international relations and particularly the commercial side of that uh, is that these factories into which uh, Uyghurs and other Xinjiang peoples are being moved, uh, many of them were built by companies from eastern China uh, and run by them. Many of them were built with funding from provinces and rich cities of eastern China as part of a development program called the Partnership Assistance Program. And so what these policies have really done is they've wrapped up and, and, and brought in and made complicit uh, multiple provinces and cities of the East, as well as hundreds of companies, technological companies, but also textile companies and anything to do with, with cotton in, partic in particular. And so we're beginning to see now um, in you know, some of the recent actions by the U.S. government, sanctions, putting of companies on entities lists, uh, and, and also um, in uh, flagging of, of, of companies in other ways, uh, to see the results of all of this you know, trickling out uh, into broader uh, public knowledge. And there's also been a campaign by human rights organizations and increasingly by, by young people uh, on, on TikTok and Twitter and other media who are, who are calling this out, who are mentioning some of these global companies that are involved with this, which include very well-known names, H&M, uh, Nike, Adidas, Victoria's Secret, Mitsubishi, uh, the Caterpillar uh, Farm, you know, agricultural equipment company, many, many more. There's uh, 80 some that have been identified so far, all of which are, are directly or indirectly related to this, uh, this surveillance, indoctrination, internment, and forced labor regime uh, in the region. So finally, just to finish this up, this leaves us with kind of a dilemma because you know I began my remarks talking about how in many ways U.S. policies towards China, those that are damaging to diplomatic relations, such as closing consulates, uh, these are, are self-serving. They're not well thought through. Uh, they're not good for the peoples of either country. Uh, on the other hand, we have the, the circumstance going on in Xinjiang, which, which meets the, very precisely meets some of the uh, uh, items of the, or some of the components of the UN definition of, of genocide, in particular, uh, transferring children away from their families and suppression of births are right there in the five items. They're very, very clear. So on the one hand, you have these atrocities going on. Um, and in my piece in The Guardian, I try and draw a distinction between uh, some of the policies and some of the actions of the Trump administration, which seem to be clearly aimed at creating a smoke screen for the Trump administration's own bungling of COVID and, and raising China as the bogeyman uh, for the next election. And then other policies, in particular Global Magnitsky Act uh, and the Uyghur Human Rights Protection Act, which is uh, uh, under underlay the 
specific sanctions against individual officials and against corporations. You know, those are much more targeted. Uh, they're, they're strategic. They're thought through. They didn't actually originate in the Trump administration themselves. They were bills that were moved out through Congress. And, and, and those, I think, show a way in which um, the United States, you know, can live up to its own, its own values, ideally in combination with allies. And this, of course, is another failing of the Trump administration. Uh, and can call out these atrocities without at the same time damaging the overall diplomatic relations you know, more than one has to, um, and in particular without harming you know, millions and millions of people in China, um, without demonizing Chinese across the board, um, uh, and also, for that matter, harming our own you know, American interests uh, in China as well. No, thanks, Jim. This is an incredibly difficult thing to try to summarize um, both the most recent events and also the history that helps us contextualize it. Uh, You and others have mentioned Trump throughout the program and the kind of instability that is caused by pulling threads like the Fulbright program or the Boren scholarships, these these programs that uh, connect uh, scholars and students uh, in addition to destabilizing the State Department and the kinds of negotiations that we can make through those kinds of um, uh, of relationships. I'm wondering, as you look forward, uh, if Trump is not elected president again, whether there is is still remaining the scaffolding to rebuild those relationships? Uh, or are you thinking that they have too many threads have been pulled away? The consensus, or I, I think it's a consensus within the China studies field, is that uh, what the hawks in the Trump administration, um, Pompeo, um, the, you know, the Bannonite people, um, uh, Navarro, uh, Jeff's colleague, Peter Navarro, um, what they are trying to do is to do as much, do so much damage to the relationship uh, that it cannot be easily repaired after, should Trump not win uh, in, in November. And then what, what, you know, Trump and his, those who are only concerned about, about, about Trump personally, uh, they are, as I said, they're trying to create, a, uh, use China as a bogeyman and smoke screen. Um, they don't give a, sorry, I don't know if I can swear on, is this one of those podcasts I can swear on or not? I better not, but you go they ahead. don't give, it, they don't give a damn. They don't give a damn about the Uyghurs or the people of Hong Kong, frankly. I don't think they do at all. Um, they are using this, um, you know, this issue as part of other issues. And that's, of course, the difficult thing. Um, so that is what's going on. There's an effort to really deep six the whole relationship. And I think that's why so many of us who... Uh, even if they're, we're as critical of Chinese policies as, as I am, are nonetheless very upset to see uh, the, the, the sorts of things that the Trump administration are doing. And, and this, is, this is very different from kind of bifurcation in I don't know, you know, the, Twitter, the Twitter sphere or a, a very you know, simplistic way of looking at it. Because what, you know, I get these responses, and maybe others of the panel get this as well. If you say something critical about the United States, you're said to be a, a, a flack for the CCP, and vice versa. If you criticize China, you're said to be working for the CIA. And I'm kind of of the plague on both their houses, at least the, you know, the, the, the top leadership in both places, 
uh, at this point. Um, and I think we need to hold those two complicated ideas in our head at the same time um, and you know, uh, uh, call out genocide but at the same time, try to avoid a cold war. Oh, I would just like to make a really quick point uh, about Jim's fabulous presentation on an immensely difficult topic when what he mentioned in the beginning about technology and how the U.S. government has used federal resources um, with regards to Chinese entities, uh, companies, and individuals who supposedly engage in commercial espionage. And a lot of these, as um, Jim mentioned as well, are not military technology or things that directly relate to national security, but are just commercial interests. And I think this is um, there is a legal aspect to it, but on, on a philosophical level, there is also this tension between what is the relationship between capital and the state. And, and, and I think the United States hasn't really thought through what its notion of a free market and free flow of capital with regards to its actions that are taking against Chinese entities, and which relates to the point that Jim mentioned later in terms of the genocide that is happening in Xinjiang. And it's something that I think about a lot because as a Han Chinese person, I feel complicit in my identity. And, and I do not really know what I can do that is constructive. And and I think uh, what has been revealed, as Jim mentioned, is how these global companies are complicit in the actions that, that are being taken by the Chinese government in Xinjiang and are profiting off labor from from people from from a people that whose culture are facing politically motivated erasure and. And I think what is particularly important is, um, as what Hannah Arendt said, right? What people, the people who choose lesser evil, will very quickly forget that they chose evil. And I think people anywhere, regardless of their nationality or or the political system they live in, they, they would be much better served instead of projecting some kind of political fantasy on a distant location, a distant people, and appropriating their struggle is much more cons- constructive to evaluate their own complicities in this global system of oppression. Thanks so much. I want to go back to something that uh, Jim said by, by way of conclusion here, uh, which is that we live in a very, very polarized political moment. Uh, and con- that means that conversations take this kind of simplistic approach that that Jim so eloquently laid out, in which you can't criticize something without becoming the enemy. Uh, If listeners enjoyed this kind of conversation, which I think models the very opposite of that approach, please tweet at me, please tweet at members of this distinguished panel. We will put up all of the links uh, on the blog. And let us know that you would like us to continue these kinds of conversations uh, about China, about other topics, but particularly let us know what you thought and whether this uh, helped you further have a further nuanced view. I want to welcome everybody to follow the links that will be in the blog post to the most recent writings and um, uh, podcasts that involve these four scholars. I don't know anything about China. 
but I follow these people on Twitter. I read what they post and it makes me into a far more knowledgeable though I citizen, though I have no solution. So uh, thank you, Jeff Wasserstrom, Jim Millward, Yang Yang Chen, and Molly Roberts uh, for joining us today on this inaugural version of Postscript, uh, New Books in Political Science.